From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest for this episode is Doug Conant. Doug and I had so much to talk about. He is such a font of leadership and work-life wisdom that we extended this conversation so it's a little longer than our usual episodes. Doug is a globally renowned business leader with decades of experience uh, in the business world. He is now, recently, uh, he founded Conant Leadership, and that's what he's doing, is running this mission-driven organization that is equipping leaders with tools to master the challenges of leadership in our turbulent world. So he's using his wisdom and experience and great teaching ability to help others learn the craft of leadership. He is the former CEO of Campbell Soup Company, and under his stewardship there, employee engagement went from among the worst in the Fortune 500 to being consistently rated among the best. So this is a really good example of how companies can improve their performance while respecting their employees' lives and uh, their, their um, personal aspirations. Uh, and Doug has written about this in uh, a book, a wonderful book called Touch Points, best-selling book. He's a sought-after keynote speaker, and he was a great guest speaker in my Total Leadership course. In this episode, we talk about his leadership philosophy and how it embraces the whole self, what he did to create superior employee engagement at Campbell's Soup, the the question of how you develop an authentic presence in the workplace and how crucial it is to be continually reflecting with humility on your experience in order to learn to grow as a leader. He's got some great advice for people at all stages in their career and in their lives. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Doug Conant. Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to be here. Uh, I should say that Doug just rocked the house in my Wharton classroom. Uh, he gave a, a guest lecture to the students in my total leadership class, and they were just bowled over by his, uh, his candor, his wisdom, his uh, humility, and his great ideas. All right, Doug, so I've mentioned that you were the CEO of Campbell Soup Company. How has your experience in uh, various executive positions shaped your values when it comes to, to culture and the importance of the whole person of the employee? Well, well, I've, uh, uh, Stu, first it's great to be back with you again. And uh, as I said in your class, and I'll say here now, uh, you and I have approached this from two different perspectives. One, you as a student and as a, a student of this for a long time, studying the world at work and uh, challenging us to do better. I've been a practitioner 
in the corporate world, and we've both ended up in the same place. So it's a pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you. The uh, I have found if you want to get people wildly engaged in the work, uh, you have to uh, wildly engage them. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the full person that needs to be engaged, not just the business person. Um, uh, when I have, in all of my work experiences, the people that have differentiated themselves and, and the work teams that have differentiated themselves are people who have had real passion for the work and and have made the work personal. Mm-hmm. And if one is going to make the work personal, it needs to go beyond just uh, showing up to go through the road activities of the workplace. And so uh, we have found that the more we could honor the personal, the whole person at work, the more they honored our agenda for the enterprise. Mm-hmm. And the more I acknowledge that we all have full lives and that we are not only workers, we're parents with children, we're colleagues, we're friends, we're community activists in our own way. Mm-hmm. The more we found that the more we acknowledged the whole person, the more the whole person got engaged in our work, uh, the higher employee engagement went, and the better our performance uh, went. So I found in personal experience over a decade of doing this work in one company that uh, it, more than, it more than paid for itself. Not only that, but it doesn't cost anything. Hmm. Uh, really? To, to honor people hmm. and to listen to their full story and then to uh, encourage them to engage in the work is uh, it's not necessarily a high-cost activity. It's just honoring people. The more you honor people, their whole selves, the more they honor the agenda, and the better you perform. It's not rocket science. Now, you shared some uh, some evidence of that philosophy with my students uh, just in the last hour. Can you, can you recount uh, in just a you know, quick summary what you have observed in terms of your engagement scores as they've been measured uh, systematically and, and as well your financial performance as a, as a company when you were uh, CEO of, of Campbell Soup? Well, we had a, we we measured. Uh, I, I I don't believe you can manage an, a large enterprise. You can't manage it if you can't measure things. Mm-hmm. So you can't manage it if you can't measure it. We said we believed employee engagement was the key to our success, and so we measured it and we reported on it in the annual report. We measured it every year, and uh, we went from in the f- early days uh, something called an engagement ratio as defined by Gallup as the people Gallup the uh, Gallup, survey and uh, feedback consulting yeah, company the Gallup company mm-hmm. uh, who are the leaders in this space mm-hmm. globally and uh, so they have a lot of comparative data they have benchmarking data by country by function by sector mm-hmm. by work group so you can really start to cut the data and gain insights mm-hmm. in a way that you can't with many other tools, mm-hmm. although there are a lot of tools on the market. But we measured employee engagement, people wildly engaged, divided by the people who were not engaged in the work. And when we started, it was two to one, two people engaged in the work for every one person who was not. But that meant that if we had 20,000 people at Campbell Soup Company, I only had 13,000 people engaged in the work, and I had 7,000 people out looking for a job. Mm. Not good. If not actually, then psychologically yeah, not they, present. Yeah, they weren't fully present. Right. And so uh, we said we, we just have to do better. 
and we set up a goal over a decade to get to world class, which Gallup would tell us was 12 to 1, and uh, measured it every year and skipping some years. We went from 2 to 1 to 4 to 1 to 6 to 1 to, uh, I want to say, 8 to 1 to 12 to 1. And we went as high as 17 or uh, 23 to 1 one year, and then we ended up at 17 to 1 thereafter, well beyond world-class benchmarks. And this is from a struggling uh, uh, old, old economy mm-hmm. canned soup company that's headquartered in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States, Camden, New Jersey. This was not some high-tech thing where it was easy to mm-hmm. get people excited about it. So we were able to create this wildly engaged culture. And importantly, you need to lead from in front with this work. And we looked at our top 350 leaders, and we went from two to one. And by the time I retired- That ratio among the top 350. Yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, among the top 350, we had two people engaged for every one person who was not. By the time I retired, the number was 77 to one. In other words, we had about five people out of the 350 who weren't engaged. Didn't matter. We had a very highly charged culture with people wildly engaged in their work, and uh, we were doing some extraordinary things. So give us some examples of some of those initiatives that you took on that really moved the needle. Everything from uh, uh, we were uh, highly structured uh, around uh, the uh, appropriate attire at work, and we created more flexible work attire to uh, uh, creating an enlightened way to give people time off while the balance of the department would cover for them, and they rotated through so that the department's fine. They were able to fully function with fewer people and giving some of their uh, employees, uh, all of the employees got more time off. They basically, uh, the, the work groups were working 40 to 60-hour weeks yet they were getting, uh, every individual was maybe working 35 hours. And so they were having, we were finding ways to creatively free up time for employees to go do other things and to be with their kids and to go to the school conference or to go to an after-school sport activity. All you had to do was empower the group mm-hmm. to say, you know, you're still accountable. And we have metrics. And in the corporate world, boy, do we have metrics. We have metrics. We Here's the performance we expect. And Actually, they would recommend the metrics, and we say, "Okay, now let's let's find so you a way had to the deliver work group this." Define how oh, they yeah. were going to be measured. They were empowered. Well, it was a collaborative effort. Okay, uh, because they want to excel too, right? And uh, so, what we found was that uh, they would create the metrics. They would find ways to create fle- workplace flexibility, and everybody benefited. And they would be more engaged. And the more engaged they got, the better we performed. And by the way, they didn't, uh, uh, they didn't want to let that get away from them. The, there was a huge incentive to keep it going and to make it even better. To get what? To, to, well, to, 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 to lose. The, they had created room in their lives for more flexibility. The last thing they wanted to do was not have that work. Right. So they were determined to make it work. And so if somebody had to lean into it a little more for a few weeks, they did in order to ensure that the outcome was what they had guaranteed. They owned it. What did you do, Doug, to make sure that uh, everyone was pulling their oar? Uh, because I hear a lot of stories about, well, you know, he gets time off because he's a dad or she gets time off because she's got to take care of her mother. 
I have to go to my bowling league, and nobody wants to give hey, me time hey, off. Hey, it's clear, it's clear expectations. This is the expectations of your department. Your department has to deliver those. You figure out how you're going to deliver them in collaboration with the teams you work with. But it's it's all focused on outcomes. It's not focused right. on fairness. It's it's you're either performing or you're not. Now let's find a enlightened way to deliver performance that creates more flexibility for you. That's an interesting phrase, Doug. Enlightened way. What what did you mean by that? Well, what I mean is uh, uh, you don't naturally go to uh, the old paradigms of how you do your work. You think about work in a fresh way, saying, here's the outcome we desire. Now, how can we approach it in a way that creates more flexibility for us and delivers even better performance? And when you take the constraints away, People become creative. The the constraints of tradition and here's how we used to do it. Yeah. And there's a reason why you did it that way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you have to keep doing it that way. Mm -hmm. But there's if you create a little more flexibility uh, for problem solving, I find it creates greater ownership in the group, a greater sense of accountability, and a uh, a real, uh, a, a very, very much of an ownership mindset for the people in the group. That high engagement corresponded to an improvement in performance that was meaningful. We, uh, over the last eight years, our uh, uh, we more we our total shareholder returns were well beyond the food group and five times that of the S and P five hundred, and that was through two economic meltdowns in the min, in the, during that period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our we grew earning uh, earnings per quality earnings per share growth for ten straight years. We, our revenue growth was 2x the food industry average. Our return on invested capital was at a record high. Our cash flow was at a record high. Our uh, productivity uh, in terms of revenue per employee and earnings per employee was at a record high. And our level of investment was at a record high. Uh, so, so it wasn't either or. No. It was both end, wasn't in it? In fact, it's the only way to do it. If you want to have an, in my opinion, if you want to have an enduring business proposition, the people have to be engaged, and they have to be engaged in a way that drives the financial reality that's required for an enterprise to compete in the, in, in the global marketplace. And it's it's not uh, this organization is not uh, a service organization. I mean, there are service uh, capabilities, yeah. but it's primarily a, a manufacturing organization. Right? Yeah, well, we were and we, it was a brand-driven organization, mm-hmm. consumer brands, uh, and we were focused. Uh, we were manufacturing, but we were focused on meeting the needs of our consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, faster, better, and more completely than anyone else on the planet. Our consumers were in three large categories that we ended up choosing to compete in. Mm-hmm. One was something called Simple Meals, which was largely soup, and we built the number one position in the world in soup. Another one was uh, in veg. In, our other core sector was vegetable juice, uh, where we built the number one position in the world in vegetable juice. The brand here people would know would be V8. Mm-hmm. And basically, we were the world's largest vegetable processor. So we'd harvest these vegetables within 100 miles of our facilities. We'd bring them in fresh. We'd move, uh, they'd either move to soup processing or beverage processing. And we created two global platforms for growth. And then the third platform we built was uh, focused on meeting consumer needs was we built the third largest snack baking, uh, baked snacks company in the world. 
the brand people would know here in this country is Pepperidge Farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we had two number one positions in the world, one number three position in the world, and we focused on growing those with highly engaged employees. Uh, I guess the model you might think about at a really simple high level is the Jim Collins model. In good to great, if you think about strategy, you mm-hmm. need three things, right? You need to have uh, – you need to know what you do better than anyone else in the world. You need to uh, know uh, – how to make money at that. So there's a financial engine you have to understand. And the third thing is, what's your organization most passionate about? Mm. And we were able to tap into the passion of serving our consumers in these segments with very passionate employees in a way that was differentiating. Now, many organizations uh, think that uh, or believe, you know, that they have cultures that kind of uh, speak to the notion that you can't have both uh, you know, high quality engagement of the whole person and uh, you know, world class financial performance that you have to drive hard uh, in order to get the latter uh, at, at the expense of the former. Uh, so, how what's what's the essence of of how you did that, Doug Goner, when you were uh, yeah. CEO of uh, of Campbell yeah. Soup? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a folk tale about the goose and the golden egg. And uh, we all know how that ended. Uh, it's, it was an unsustainable proposition mm-hmm. when you decided to go for the goose to get the golden eggs. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I have That's found, and I have found that uh, there is no, to me, there's no evidence of an, a company that has in, had enduring success that has not engaged people in a more wholesome way. Mm-hmm. You never get all the way to bright. You just got to get to a more wholesome approach than the people you compete with. Mm-hmm. This is an, a very important notion here, is that it's life is all relative. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be better than your peer group and mm-hmm. better than the other guy. Mm-hmm. And if you engage people in a more fulsome way, you can win. And uh, so, so I would debate. So why do you think there's such resistance to that idea? Well, our, or, our, or, or our lack country, of acceptance or even understanding or basic grasp of this notion. Well, first of all, I think it's changing. Uh, as I shared with you in the back of, I just read it yesterday in the back of the latest Harvard Business Review. Mm-hmm. The, you know, there the last page is about how nice companies finish first, mm-hmm. and uh, people that uh, companies that care about employees, that care about the environment, and that care about financial performance. Uh, I think the evidence is coming in that the more we engage people in a fulsome way, the more we think about uh, things beyond exclusively shareholder returns. The, uh, the better off uh, we are in an enduring way in the marketplace. That having been said, you've got to perform. You've got to deliver your numbers. Absolutely. You know, there, there's, you know, as you and I talked, you have to be incredibly tough-minded on standards, mm-hmm. and you do have to outperform the competition. But I found you can do that by honoring the whole person. In fact, it's easier to do it by honoring the whole person than it is by cracking the whip over a half a person. So what have you found, Doug, that is really the, the great challenge when it comes to um, creating a, a sense of harmony between work and the rest of life in a large company? Where, where are the, uh, the pressure points? We'll talk about touch points soon, but the pressure points. Well, I think it, it's important that everybody, everyone be reflective on what matters most to them. Mm-hmm. You know, a big piece of your work and a big piece of my work demands that people be reflective on what matters most. And... Uh, in, 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 to them as a whole person. 
and uh, and you you challenge them to look at certain domains which help them get to this point where they start to view themselves more holistically. I think the first step is that people need to be reflective, mm-hmm. and then they need to evaluate their culture that they're in in against the same model. You know, you talk about mm-hmm. your four uh, domains. Domains. Yes. You need to evaluate the culture you're in in the workplace by those four domains. And then you need to see how is this going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then you need to select either in or out. What if you feel like you've got no choice, as many people do? They feel- I, 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 can't, you can't, I can't accept it. Uh, there's always choice. You, you, there, there's always choice. There, you, if you choose to be in it, and you say, well, I'm choosing to be in it for financial reality in term- because I need the job. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're choosing to be in it, you need to ch- – I would challenge people to choose to be in it in a fulsome way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because My boss won't let me. I don't buy it. I'm, I'm now playing devil's advocate here. Don't accept it. Why not? Because there are – How pl- do you get around that? How many times are you in the room with the boss? Is your boss with you all, every step of the way? No. Yeah, the bosses may be with you, mm-hmm. you know, in except with with exceptions. The bosses may be with you five percent of the time. The other ninety five percent of the time, how you're showing up and how you're working with your colleagues mm-hmm. is completely within your control. And and I don't accept that you have to just be carrying the missive of the boss. You can have your challenges, you can have your standards, but how you show up with your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is your choice. I, I certainly have found that people have a lot more control than they think they have once they're really compelled to think about what are your core values? What do you stand for? What's most important to you? Who matters most to you? Talk to those people so you really understand uh, what it is that they expect of you. And, and what you typically discover is that what other people expect of you is, is actually a little bit less than what you thought. And that gives you a greater sense of uh, relief and also a freedom to choose to act in ways that are consistent with who you really want to be. How do you help people to come to that realization? When I talk to people, I say, think about the person who's had the most profound influence on you in your life. Mm -hmm. Pick somebody, a teacher, a coach, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle. Just pick somebody. And... uh, and then and then I and then we talk about uh, talk about it, and we say, well, did they have high standards for you? Oh, absolutely. They mm-hmm. had enormous standards for me. They held me. They held me accountable to pursuing to pursuing the best you could. what in whatever they were thinking about. They had high standards for me. And then I said, well, did they care about you too? And to a person, they all said yes. Mm-hmm. They all say yes. Yeah, so you can, isn't that interesting? Isn't both. isn't that interesting? This person had the most profound influence on you in your life. They had high standards for you, and they did care about you. And then we get into this conversation. You know exactly what this looks like. You've lived it. And what I'm challenging people to do is be more like that with the people with whom they live and work. They have role models in their lives where this has worked, and and they've experienced it firsthand. There's no excuse for you not showing up this way with the people with whom you live and work in a lot of the circumstances that you can control Mm -hmm. when your boss is not in the room. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Stu Friedman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I'm just so glad you're listening. If you like the Work and Life podcast, I would personally appreciate your taking just a minute 
to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast, whatever your favorite platform is. We are relatively new as a podcast, uh, and our team is working really hard to bring you for free the best of the conversations that took place on my Sirius XM radio show, but were previously available only to paid subscribers. So every positive rating and review helps us to grow our capacity to move faster toward the goal of sharing useful information and insights about how to create harmony among the different parts of life with people who wouldn't otherwise have access. So please do help us. And if you have ideas for what we can do to improve our impact, please write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. And now, back to the show. Doug, we were talking about engagement and uh, how how natural it is to, to pursue the full engagement of employees' uh, passion and energy as a way to get to a great performance. And yet it's not quite so common, that wisdom, in the, the world of many organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you advise people uh, through Conant Leadership to, to get to that point and to overcome what might be seen as a traditional mindset about you know, having to trade one part of life for another, having to give up your, the rest of your life in order to be successful in your work life? Well, I would, I would just ask people, and how's that working for you? Uh, and most people would say it's not great. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, what, what I have found on this employee engagement piece in a more structured way, there, there, are four, there are four territories that one has to look to if you want to create a high engagement culture. And uh, I steal the language from Stephen Covey, but he basically took it from Maslow. <laughs> and, and it also works with all the drive work that's been done up at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, basically, the four territories that I look for are the, 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 the handles for them are living, loving, learning, and leaving a legacy. At a foundational level, you've got to make sure that you, people are getting a fair day's pay for their fair day's work, mm-hmm. that the working conditions are adequate so that they have the materials and equipment they need to do their job. If you want them engaged, they have to have that at a minimum. Mm-hmm. What Gallup has found, the Gallup organization mm-hmm. has found, the next level that correlates most highly to improved employee engagement is this notion of loving. And this is not, obviously, a loose term, but the notion is people receiving positive feedback when they do something right. And the question they actually ask is, have you received positive feedback from your manager at least once in the last week, just one time? Now, I guarantee you all workers have done one thing right during the course of a week. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, our culture has developed in all of these organizations are wonderful critical thinking organizations built to sort of solve problems, not to celebrate successes. And so uh, we would challenge our people to make sure the conditions are right for people to work, make sure you celebrate contributions of significance that are moving the enterprise forward Mm -hmm. and helping us reach our standards. And that is loosely captured in this concept of loving our employees and celebrating successes. The next level is learning. Because they're spending so much time at work, are they learning and developing as human beings? Are they learning new things? 
we find that the more people are learning, when they're making a living, they're feeling valued, and they're learning, mm -hmm. they continue to grow, and their engagement grows further. The last, at the top of the pyramid, is is what Maslow would call self-actualization. Mm -hmm. It's leaving a legacy. Am I, you know, I'm spending more of my waking hours either working or thinking about doing work than anything else I do, including my family. I work all day. I go to bed thinking about what I did or didn't do and mm -hmm. what I have to do tomorrow. I wake up with a plan in my head of what I got to go do next, and. In some way, we try and create a sense of significance for the contribution of every employee. Hmm. And uh, we help them kind of ladder up to something that's meaningful to them. If you focus on living, and loving, learning, leaving anyone, a legacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a receptionist. The receptionist, I'm not going to say her name, but I, I love her to pieces. And I, I've been gone for several years now from Campbell Soup Company. But the woman who welcomes people coming into our building, building plays a mission critical role mm -hmm. you, you could say but I'm only the receptionist but she makes a, a statement about our company in terms of we are competent people mm -hmm. we know what we're doing we're high character people we do what we say we're going to do and we value people in total that that partner with us she's communicating that every day she is contributing every interaction. To every interaction. So she's competing to that. Uh, she's contributing to our legacy there. You can do this with any organization, mm -hmm. uh, with any individual in an organization. Living, loving, learning, leaving a legacy. Four wonderful check the box kinds of things you can do to say, I can do better than we're doing. We can do better than we're doing today in any work group, in any situation, and even with a boss who is more reminiscent of Ebenezer Scrooge. Really? How do you do it in that circumstance when you've got Scrooge before he sees I the ghost of uh, Christmas future? I have found that as long as I'm focused on performance in the fullness of time, I get the latitude I need to do things the way I want to do them. So mm -hmm. I always focus on delivering the performance. No boss that I have ever worked for, maybe some people have had to work for these bosses. I've been blessed, but I've had... 23 different bosses. And uh, nobody said, I don't want you to be I be mean, be inconsiderate. What are you doing honoring those people? Nobody has ever said that to me. They have high expectations for my performance, and are we delivering the numbers or not? Mm -hmm. But how I treat people, nobody has ever told me how I'm supposed to treat people. They have told me that I need to deliver results. Mm-hmm. And I focus on delivering the results, and I treat people in the best way I know of getting these results in an enduring way, which is honoring them and respecting them. In and, a tender-hearted way is the language and, you used in my and, class. Just, and just and I believe you do that. But you only get the right, you, you know, you can only do that in the fullness of time if you're also delivering results. You've got to do both, right? You've got to deliver. You've got to be, t as we talked earlier today, you have to be tough-minded on standards, and you have to deliver expected results, but I would also argue that in the fullness of time, you also need to be tender-hearted with people. Look, as a parent, you know, I don't want to equate managing to parenting, but when I'm at my best with my kids, yep. we're communicating high standards, and I'm doing it in a way that's supportive of getting the best mm -hmm. possible results. When I'm at my worst, it's when I'm clinging to the standards, and I'm being incredibly inconsiderate of how they're of, of, of how they're engaging in it. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is cosmically true in the workforce. 
And I don't think, I'm not talking about parenting people in the workplace, but I am talking about honoring people in the workplace as you would the people with whom you live. Now, you've learned from mistakes that you've made, as we all have, and you, you told the story in my class just uh, an hour or so ago about when you were fired. Uh, what happened there, Doug, and, and what did you learn from that experience that helped you to become uh, the, the CEO that you eventually did well, become and, and well, to lead I, to your success, ultimately? Well, I, I, I was clearly uh, not performing well enough, and the company I was working for uh, had a change in ownership, and they eliminated my job. I'd been with the company for nine years, and in a snap, I went in one day. They said, your job's been eliminated. You need to pack up and be out of here by noon. And uh, as I shared with your class, I went home to my wife, my two small children, and my one very large mortgage, mm-hmm. feeling very much the victim. I was furious. Mm. And uh, I had some choice words to say when I left the organization. <clears throat> Not repeatable here. And I declined uh, any outplacement help. I said, I don't need any of that. Mm-hmm. I'll, fi- I'll take care of myself. And I, 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 went, I rushed off. And I, I, about after being home for about two hours, I decided, you know, I better call them and get some outplacement help because I need a job. And uh, in the fullness of time, I discovered I had to leave the victim mentality behind, which I felt incredibly, it was deep. And it was, it was gut-wrenching to go through. Uh, but I had to leave the victim mentality behind, and I had to refocus my efforts full-time on conducting the world's greatest op- job search. And uh, I had a coach that uh, was incredibly tough with me, uh, who, uh, uh, I mean, he had world-class standards, and he wouldn't accept a victim mentality for a minute. He said, that's just not good enough. You know, you can't move forward until you let go of all that stuff. You might not have been able to get there without his helping you to get there. I couldn't have. And that's another lesson here that we've Mm -hmm. talked about before. Uh, You don't need to go this alone. This is such a much richer journey if you have people who are kindred spirits, both in your work world and and beyond, who who you can share this experience with, who you can turn to when you need help, and and whom can turn to you when Mm -hmm. when they need help. Mm And uh, this guy helped me get beyond the victim mentality, turn the coin over was his phrase, and focus on moving forward. He was ruthless with me. He said, you're going to be the world's worst interview. You know, th- you're, a, you're an introvert. You don't speak unless spoken to. You need to sell yourself, and you're just sitting there like a bump on a log. Obviously, I've gotten over that now. But, uh, you know, I was brought up to you don't speak until you're spoken to. And you respond to people politely and appropriately, and you say yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and and uh, and and he said, you know, that's all well and good, but that's not who you really are. Uh, you're a former uh, competitive athlete. There's a fire burning inside you. You want to compete. You want to contribute. You want to win. But nobody will ever know when they interview you because you're so controlled and you're so polite and you're so thoughtful. And he said you. He, he created this notion for me, which uh, I, when I'm helping people who are going through outplacement, I share with them, of integrity-laden role-playing. He basically Integrity-laden role-playing. Role playing. Explain he what that is. He said you actually have to be the person you really are with people. Uh, he said you're misleading them when you're always polite. You're not always polite. You're thinking something else. You're very competitive. You want to win. They need to see who you really are, not the person you were brought up to be 
portray yourself as. Mm. You have to authentically show up and tell them what you think and tell them how you feel. And that was a scary thing for an introvert to do, to kind of go out on that limb and say, here's who I am and here's what I think and here's what I believe in. So what did you do to get past that? I... I've been working. I've been working on it for thirty years. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm just starting to hit my stride. <laughs> no, this is this for me. This has been a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, I've I've gotten beyond it now. I've become comfortable with a lot of reflection on the kind of leader I want to be. And that was my pep talk from this crusty <laughs> New Englander uh-huh. who was trying to help me get a job. But well, he, he was, did help you. Yeah, he did, and he was challenging me to shape up and uh i needed it i needed it and he was there for me completely he as tough as he was he was doing it in a powerfully caring way uh every time i would you would call him he since passed away in 2006 every time you would call him he would say hello this is neil mckenna how can i help this was before caller id mm-hmm. he just wanted to help people that's all he did so you didn't know who was on the line when you were he calling didn't, he he didn't know but he just wanted that to help. That was just his modus that, operandi. And, that, and he declared himself. He said, this is what I'm here to do. I want to help you. Mm-hmm. And how can I help? And uh, it was life-changing for me. How have you learned to declare yourself at work, especially in a new situation where you're not yet fully comfortable with your coworkers? Well, I found that when I would go into a work situation, I think anyone listening to our conversation can relate to this. At the very beginning of it, I'm sort of trying to figure out my boss, and I'm doing this little tap dance. Well, what does the boy, boss want, and how am I supposed to behave? And it takes a couple of months to sort of hit stride, and I discovered there's a better way for me. I take the first hour of the first day of every job I take, and I, ta- I, ta- I declare myself. I share with them everything they might ever want to know about me. Everything? Pretty much. I mean, I go I go fairly deep because I'm very comfortable doing this now. Mm. I didn't initially, mm-hmm. and uh, so you had to practice and to well, see the benefits. I've probably. been doing this over years, but and then I encourage them to come back and share an hour with me, whatever they want. Uh-huh. Half of them don't even come back because it's awkward for them. But at the end of the hour, I say, "Look, I've now shared all this with you. You know, ex- I'm taking the mystery out of this relationship. You know exactly now how I think, what my motives are." If I do what I say I do, I guess you can trust me. If I don't, mm-hmm. you can't, but you'll know that. And uh, it does two things. One, it challenges me to really give words to how I think and how I feel, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. And two, it makes me accountable to them because I've told them how I'm going to behave. And believe me, I, you feel this extra sense of responsibility to show up that way. Well, and there's some risk in that yeah. too, is there not? Well, if you're, yeah. Yeah, there's risk. But there's risk anyway. Yeah, I mean, risk of not doing it and not moving the relationship forward, I have found, is 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 a bigger risk than mm-hmm. declaring myself and then moving forward in mm-hmm. the ways that I tell them I'm going to move forward. I don't I don't claim to have all the answers. And even when I declare myself, I'm I tell them I'm going to screw up. I mean, the one thing I know is I'll do things wrong. <laughs> Uh, but I'll acknowledge... Demonstrating I'll, humility, I'll, another well, one of your key uh, well, principles. I think it's important uh, yeah. because, you know, nobody has it all right, and you have to be willing to declare yourself and acknowledge mistakes uh, openly, thoughtfully, and then you just move on. So declaring yourself is a big piece of this, and 
I'm actually working with uh, Susan Cain, uh, who wrote Quiet Revolution. Yeah. And Susan and I have, are in collaboration now on how introverts can declare themselves because it's mission critical for introverts, uh, of which I am one. And, uh, uh, and we're trying to create some structured way for introverts to be able to declare themselves in a way they're comfortable uh, so that they can take a little more mystery out of the relationship they have with the organization mm-hmm. and, and, and start to show uh, themselves a little in a little more fulsome way than they would have otherwise. Including aspects of themselves beyond the work uh, role? Yes, yes. And what, but you've got to go, you can only move as comfortable as people are willing to move. Absolutely. But they only have to be a little more open and sharing than they were before to make progress. So again, it's all relative. Well, that's true of all of us, right? Yeah, Another yeah. principle that, that you yeah. uh, demonstrate so well and are so clear about is this notion of taking small steps that are within your control to move towards you know, the vision of the, the change yeah, you want to yeah. be. And it doesn't take much to have big impact. Well, uh, we've only got a few minutes left here, uh, and I wonder what thoughts you have as you look to the next generation. You're working with students in a number of different uh, schools, a number of different companies. You're working with young executives coming up. What's, uh, what's some advice you want to leave our listeners with in terms of what, what's most important, especially when starting out? Well, I think uh, if you go to my website at ConantLeadership.com and you go to the About Conant Leadership tab, I have uh, 12 uh, lessons learned in in these 12 little uh, neatly packaged videos. Uh, I think it's helpful to go through those 12. It it gives you my life lessons in a nutshell. The first three are the most important uh, if you want to move forward. First of all, you uh, you have to empower yourself and you have to wrestle with the kind of person uh, you and you you hope to be. Uh, you do a lot of that work, and your total leadership book is a step-by-step guide to helping people get there. As is our touch points work. Uh, if people engage in those two wor- pieces of work and they think about, they recognize they have the power to choose their response to any and every situation. That notion of empowering yourself is important. The next one is I encourage people to choose to influence the world around them in a more honorable way tomorrow than they did today. Hmm. And they will find that that will transform their working relationships. That's the second lesson. The third lesson is begin with the end in mind. You actually start to build a plan for yourself as an emerging executive and think about the person you want to become in the workplace Mm -hmm. and start to think about what that looks like. And what are going to be the values I want to bring to to my leadership philosophy? How do I want to walk in the world? I find that you've got to get your rudder in the water. Uh, these are very stormy seas. We're in the most dynamic marketplace that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I think that's ever been for a variety of reasons. Choppy seas. You've got to get your rudder in the water as a leader. You need to do a lot of reflective work to be able to handle the challenges that are coming your way. So empower yourself, influence with honor, and begin with the end in mind, and use your book and my book, and they can't lose. (laughs) Uh, Last thing I want to ask you about, 30 seconds, uh, thanking people, showing appreciation. You are such a master at that. Uh, In just the last uh, half minute here, how, how did you find a way to master that? What advice do you have for people in terms of not just honoring people, but but really demonstrating appreciation on a person-by-person basis? 
I think you have to be alert to the world around you. Our organizations are all critical thinking organizations. You have to find ways to affirm things that are going right. I practiced looking for things, so I would write 10 to 20 notes a day over a 10-year career, over 30,000 notes. We only had 20,000 employees, but they were all handwritten, hand-signed, acknowledging personal contributions of people. And in the fullness of time, we created a culture that celebrated performance, but also celebrated contribution as well. And Doug, that has taken you to amazing heights of performance and uh, real, genuine leadership impact. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been speaking with chairman of Avon Products and founder and CEO of Conant Leadership. It's Doug Conant. Uh, Doug, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Doug Conant, a wise and experienced, very successful business leader offering some some sage advice here, particularly about the value of reflection on what matters and humility. So let me offer this opportunity, an invitation, a challenge to you to try to follow some of the advice that Doug spoke about here. Why not take a few minutes sometime in the next couple of days just to reflect on what you stand for, your values, and the kind of person you're aspiring to be. Jot down a few notes about this. Think of it as a kind of manifesto for what you stand for. And share this with somebody you trust, a loved one, colleague. Get some feedback. Get a read on it. And then... Over the next week or so, see what you can do to take action. Maybe just one conscious, deliberate action per day, let us say. To take action that aligns with and really gives life to these values. So if one of your stated values is to be acting with greater compassion, for example, try acting with compassion towards a coworker, for example, and see what happens when you consciously and intentionally do this. And then let me know what you discover. I would love to hear from you about your experience. You can write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. And what we're starting to do is, uh, is to try to gather some of the stories from you and other listeners and, and, to, and to begin to share them Uh, on future podcasts. Another thing I'd like to do is to call back uh, to some of the people that have been on this show previously and bring you up to date on some of the things that they have been doing now. So in episode eight, I spoke with Scott Sonnenschein about the power of not shying away from constraints, indeed embracing constraints in your life. Wonderful concept. Recently, Scott wrote a very informative article in the Harvard Business Review called What to Do When Your Boss Says No. Check it out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, 
check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.